Welcome to the Faith Dialogue Podcast with your host, Pastor Ken Baer. Are you ready to swim in the deep end of the Bible pool or climb to the top of Faith Mountain? If so, open the eyes that see, those ears that hear, and a heart that is receptive. Get your cup of coffee and your Bible as we begin. book of Galatians, so I want to welcome you today to our continuing sermon series in the book of Galatians. And um, for those of you that have great memories, great memories, okay, but like to be reminded of what we've been talking about in the past, okay? If you remember, just a few weeks ago, we introduced this sermon series with a sermon titled, Good News. Good news. Remember, good news. And the reason is, is because the word gospel actually means uh, good news, uh, the Greek word is evangelon. evangelon. Uh, I wish I could speak Greek better than that. But it's where we get the word evangelist from. And the idea of an evangelist is a person that speaks the good news. In fact, that's one thing we need to understand today is that the good news is only good news is when you're telling other people about it. It's good news for us, but Paul was so passionate what God had done in his life that he wanted to make sure everybody understood the good news. My, my message today is, is the truth, the truth of the gospel. You know, it's, it's important to understand that the gospel is, is true. And we're going to find today that Paul wants to make sure that people understand the, the truth of the gospel. It's such good news. You know, the gospel of Jesus Christ that the apostle Paul dedicated his life to preach in the gospel. And it's good news for us as well. Now, it may not have had the same impact on us that it had on the Apostle Paul. If you remember, he was Saul the Pharisee. And Saul the Pharisee got letters from the temple in Jerusalem to be able to go out through Judea and into Samaria and into Galatia and all the different parts of Asia and be able to arrest any that he found following the way which was the name for the early church. He was going to arrest these Jews that believed in Jesus as the Christ. But if you remember, as he was, as he was riding on his horse to Damascus, the Lord met him. Okay, there was a bright, bright fresh, a big flash of, of, of uh, lightning in the sky, of, of, a bright light. Uh, Saul fell off of his horse and he heard this voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? And from that moment on, Saul started understanding who Jesus Christ truly was, who Jesus Christ truly was. He was, he was, he was transformed by the power of the Galatians and the power of the gospel. And Saul became the apostle Paul. And, he, and he, we've been reading this letter to the Galatians, that the Greek-speaking people, both Jews and Gentiles, that, bought, that Paul brought the good news of this gospel. As, his, as was his commission. Now, he's accompanied by Barnabas, a fellow Jew, and together they planted churches in Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. And it says this in Acts chapter 14. If you were with us a few months ago when we were still in Acts, we read that it said, a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the, the brothers. See, here's the, here's the thing. Paul knew the truth of the gospel. But at the same time, he knew there was going to be some that wouldn't accept the gospel. And they weren't just content to not accept it for themselves. They wanted to persecute those that followed Jesus, that believed in Jesus as the Messiah. And some of them not only rejected it, but became very violent in their opposition. The epistle of Paul to the Galatians is best understood when we have a firm understanding of the truth of the gospel. 
It was Paul was passionate about, but there's a truth of the gospel that Paul wants to make sure that the Galatians understand, and by, by extension, we, we have to understand it as well. So we're going to be picking up today in chapter 2, and we'll see that Paul is writing about another account when he visited Jerusalem. If you remember just last week, we talked about after three years, okay, Paul went back to Jerusalem. But now this is after uh, 14 years. 14 years after his conversion, he's going back to Jerusalem again. So it's in your bulletin, but we'll read it on the screen as well. We'll begin in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Paul says... Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren, secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty by which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel, there's my sermon title today, the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, Paul continues, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship of the circumcised also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, now Cephas is another name for Peter, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. So here we have Paul's account of his return to Jerusalem. This is probably right around 47 AD. Very soon, I mean, it's still very, very early in the church. Very early in the church. And Paul says in verse 2, he says, and I went up by revelation. Did you catch that word? I went up by revelation and communicated to them the gospel which I preached. Now, many scholars believe that by Paul saying by revelation, he's referring actually to an event that happened that we read about back in Acts chapter 11. And that was when Agabus, a prophet, came to Paul and the others, Barnabas and the, and the rest of them, uh, in Antioch. And he said there was going to be a severe famine in Jerusalem. So they decided to take up a collection. They were going to take up a collection and be able to send Paul and Barnabas. They kind of chose lots and decided that Paul and Barnabas was going to take these funds after they had collected it from the area churches, back to Jerusalem. So this is why Paul is saying, I did this by revelation, meaning that it really wasn't something that I planned to do, but God gave it to me to do. God gave it to him to do. Isn't it interesting? I mean, God is so sovereign, and possibly you felt that in your own life, that there was a time when God was calling you uniquely to do something. It might be as simple as picking up the phone. And calling somebody that you have on your mind. God has brought them into your attention. They, maybe you were dreaming about them. 
And, you, and God's kind of urging, why don't you go ahead and call your sister or call your friend or call your daughter, your neighbor, call somebody. God does this by revelation, God by revelation. No, he doesn't always do that. I, I wish I could tell you that God spoke to me one day. I saw, I saw this wonderful light and God said, go to celebration and start a church at, at the Windsor. He didn't do that. I wish he would have, but no, God put it on our hearts. First of all, to come to celebration, but then what could we do? What could be? I was a trained pastor. I was ordained. I had come out of a church where I was serving as a pastor. What could I do here in celebration? And here we are at the Windsor. So this is how Paul ended up in Jerusalem. But it was also because he read that there was some confusion, some confusion about his ministry to the Gentiles. We know from early church history, as well as the gospel accounts, that when the Jews accepted Jesus Christ as the Messiah, they didn't stop becoming becoming Jews. They stayed as Jewish believers. They were Jewish believers. So they would still go to the temple for the major feasts. They would still gather together on the Sabbath day, go into the synagogues and pray. Uh, they would still be kosher. They would still have their young boys circumcised. But they were believers in Jesus Christ. And that was fine. There was nothing really, that was not really, really an issue. I mean, the early church was primarily all Jews. It really didn't become an issue until Paul came along and he was finding he was having a great amount of success with the Gentiles. With the Gentiles. I mean, he had success with the Jews as well, but he had more success with the Gentiles. These were people that didn't know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They, they hadn't been trained. They had never been circumcised. There was also another group with them called God-fearers. Maybe you've heard that term before. God-fearers meant that they, they knew the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, often they would associate with the Jews, but they still never converted to Judaism. And the main reason was circumcision. For an adult male, circumcision is not the same as it is for a seven-day-old infant. It's, it's completely different. So as a result, they never became fully Jews. But there was a group of people that were now telling Paul and telling the rest of the church that these Gentiles needed to be Jews. They needed to be circumcised. And in fact, they were insisting that they needed to keep the Sabbath and had to be circumcised. Uh, so Paul and Barnabas and Titus head to Jerusalem, and, and you can read from this, uh, this account that it said that they met privately with those who were of reputation, meaning the, the apostles, uh, the elders. He, he says they were of reputation, meaning that they were, they were important people. Now, Paul didn't go there to get their approval. <laughs> if you know Paul, there was no reason that he needed approval from anybody because Jesus Christ had appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Jesus Christ had spent three years ministering to Paul. Paul knew what Jesus Christ wanted him to do. But he wanted to check. He wanted to make sure that he had some acknowledgement as well. He wanted to make sure he was on the right track. He says, lest I had run the, the, this, this course in vain. He wanted to make sure that they agreed with him. And we do the same thing, don't we? I mean, sometimes, especially when it comes to ministry, when it comes to doing something, it's nice to get some confirmation from another party. Could be your spouse, could be your son or daughter, could be a grandchild, a neighbor. It's nice to get a confirmation from somebody else that you're on the right path, right? Have you ever driven somewhere and you're wondering if you're on the same road? At least as if you're, do I have a co-pilot here? Are we, are we headed the right direction? Am I, am I still heading to Iowa, right? Am I still going the right way? And that's what Paul is doing. He wants to, to make sure. Now, let's continue here in these, in these verses today because I want to make sure I talk about Titus. 
you know, Paul said he was very happy because Titus wasn't asked to be circumcised. Now, now what happens is actually Titus is kind of a guinea pig for Paul. That's what he is. He's kind of a litmus test to see what they happen to say about Paul. So this, this is an amazing uh, uh, opportunity for Paul because he observes that even the Jewish people there, they know that Titus is a Greek. They know that he's not circumcised and nobody bothered to, to say, Paul, you should have Titus circumcised. So Paul feels that this is a, a good report. He's, he likes this, that he knows this is the truth of the gospel. And Paul is, now has his, his papers. He has his walking papers. He, he has his proof of his apostleship because those of reputation in Jerusalem, even though that's not why he came there, he actually came there for an offering. Oh, by the way, that was, uh, that's what, that's what we, we read. That's where we, that was our stewardship verse today, that they were going to collect an offering for the saints in Jerusalem. So he says, he says, he writes in verse 9, he says, When James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles. So let me tell you, the right hand of fellowship is a lot better than the left foot of fellowship, you know? I mean, you want the right hand rather than the left boot, you know? You don't want to get kicked out. Paul had been kicked out. A lot of the synagogues. I mean, he had been chased. He had been stoned. He had been thrown and left for dead. I mean, this was Paul. So for him to go to Jerusalem and have these men of renown, okay, these apostles, uh, basically give him and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, this was, this was great for Paul. Paul had been given his papers. He said he was given the task of taking the gospel, the truth of the gospel, to the uncircumcised, just as Peter was going to take the gospel to the Jews. So in many ways, Paul was vindicted, uh, vindicated by this, not vindicted, and Paul, Paul was vindicated by this, by this trip to Jerusalem. Those in charge in Jerusalem agreed with Paul. So Paul is satisfied, but the battle is not over. And we see it continuing today. And that's why I wanted to make sure that I impressed on you this, uh, this truth of the gospel. Because sometimes we can miss it. You know, the gospel that Paul preached in layman's terms today would be this. It would be Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing. Not Jesus plus circumcision. Not Jesus plus baptism. Not Jesus plus a certain church. It's Jesus plus nothing. Secondly, these Jews, these Judaizers that were after Paul and attacking Paul, uh, they'd been keeping the, the, the law for a long time, over 2,000 years. It had been 2,000 years since Abraham. And it was Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And we read the account in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and all of the, all of the books, right? We read through the Kings. We read through the, the, the first and second Samuel. We read all of the story of the Jews. They had been following Abraham and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And now all of a sudden, at the very last minute, these Gentiles are coming in. The Messiah has come and all of a sudden it's, it's, it's on wholesale. Like God's on wholesale, he's on sale. Anybody can come in just because they believe in, in Jesus Christ. So you can see the, the issue. It reminds me of a parable. Maybe it reminds you as well. If you've been to some of my Wednesday studies, we, did, we went through the parables a couple times. Reminds me of the parable about the vineyard, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Uh, it just so happens I have it on my slides, so let me read it to you. 
It says this. It says, for the kingdom of heaven. This is out of Matthew uh, chapter 20. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, when he had agreed with his laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give to you. So they went and again, went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and he did likewise. And about the 11th hour. Now, if it's the 11th hour, it means it's a 12 hour work day, right? It's a 12 hour work day. They've been working for a long time. 11 hours after he hired the first workers, he went out again and found others standing idle and said to them, why have you been standing idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to him, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to the steward, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the 11th hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more and likewise received each a denarius, or I should say only a denarius. And when they received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, these last men who worked only one hour and you've made them equal to us and have, who have borne the heat of the day. And he answered one of them and said, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as you. It is not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things. Or is I evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first will be last. For many are called, but few are chosen. So if you're, if you're relatively new to the parables, maybe this is, maybe this is new for you. Uh, but this deals exactly what Paul is talking about. This idea of the Judaizers wondering why these Gentiles would be able to be included at the last moment and be able to be included in. Maybe if you're new, you haven't heard this word, but maybe you have. It's a, the term legalistic. Have you heard the term legalistic? It seems like no church wants to be called legalistic, okay? And the idea of legalistic is that they're relying on the law rather than the truth of the gospel. That it's grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone that saves. And instead, they're relying on the law, just like these Judaizers wants. Nobody really wants to be known as a, as a legalist. But you can understand why it would be natural for these Jews to assume that because this parable tells us that they've been working all this time, and all of a sudden now there's people at the end. There's, there's legalistic churches out there. Maybe you know some of them. We're not going to point out any individually, but I thought what I'd do, just to kind of give you a, a real lot of fun here at the end of my sermon, to talk about you too could be a legalist, okay? So I've got three signs, three signs you have much in common with the Judaizers, and we'll see if we can find each one of us on here, okay? Sign number one. Uh, there's an old saying, and maybe you know it. I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't chew or run with boys or girls who do. Do you know that one? Okay. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew or go with boys that, that, that do. Uh, you know, here, there's many variations on this saying. And, and the issue is this, is that in moderation, okay, all things are really permissible. And there's nothing wrong with people that abstain from drinking. 
or, or abstain from smoking, okay? I mean, I wouldn't want to any, encourage anybody to smoke. But at the same time, that doesn't make you a better Christian. It doesn't make you acceptable in God's sight where somebody that does drink or does smoke is unacceptable, okay? If you believe that, if you believe that you've got to abstain from certain things in order to be approved by God, you too could be a Judaizer. Uh, it, there's other things too. It's the lottery playing pool. I remember when I was in when I was in Pittsburgh. I was on pastoral staff, and we got a call. Remember when the lotteries uh, got to be ten million, then twenty million? Not, not like four or five hundred million dollars. It's crazy now. But the, the Pittsburgh lottery, the Pennsylvania live, live lottery, got to a hundred million dollars. It was huge, huge, and it was front page news. And and a, and a newspaper actually called us up. I think it was a radio station actually called us up at the church and wanted to know as a church what we thought of the lottery, okay? And nobody wanted to take the call, except me. <laughs> I said, bring it on. I'll talk to the guy, right? So, so when I kind of turned around on him, you know, and I said, would you, would you, you know, would you like to win? I mean, you know, forget about playing. Would you like to win $100 million? That would be kind of fun. And they said, well, if one of your congregants won $100 million, what would you tell them? I just say, well, just be, be sure you tithe. <laughs> Make sure you tithe, okay? 10% goes to the church. So, see, here's the thing. Your relationship with the Lord has nothing to do with these other things, okay? Your relationship with the Lord is outside of the fruits of the Spirit. If the Lord puts on your heart to lose weight, if the Lord puts on your heart to stop drinking, if the Lord puts on your heart to, to, to stop smoking, well, goodness gracious, go ahead and do that. But that doesn't get you approved by God. That's just the benefits of being smarter than you were before. Let's go on. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Paul said this in Colossians chapter 2. Paul says, if you've died with Christ to the spiritual forces of the world, and this is the key, this is the truth of the gospel, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its regulation? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These will all perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such restrictions indeed have an appearance of wisdom. See, this is the thing. They look like they're religious. They look like they're wise. But... They will all such restrictions indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-prescribed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they are of no value against the indulgences of the flesh. Okay, so Paul makes it very clear that these things really don't provide the benefits you think they do. Let's go on. Sign number two. Sign number two. Perhaps you are relying on some church activity some church sacrament, some piece of paper rather than the goodness, the grace, and the mercy of God. See, this could include baptism. It, include, it could include your certificate of membership to the church, a plaque that you have graduated from a seminar, or maybe even your giving statement that you can show that you've given 10% to your local church. You know, churches are, are organizations, and some organizations have members, and some have partners, some has, have had attendees, you know, all kinds. God bless the churches. The, the churches are doing a great job of trying to get you involved, of trying to teach you, of trying to encourage you. There are sacraments. We believe in the Lord's Supper. We believe in baptism. We believe in baptism by immersion. There's, there's things that we believe, but those things don't make you a Christian. The thing that makes you a Christian is your faith and belief in Jesus Christ. That's what does it. We are baptized because we believe in Jesus. It's a sign of obedience, but it doesn't get, it doesn't get your ticket punched to heaven. Okay? Want to do some more? 
<laughs> These are fun, right? Sign number three. Sign number three. And there's going to be a number of things on here. I talked to my wife about a couple of things. There are some things I had on here, and she said, take those off. <laughs> take those off. Uh, uh, the first one. If by chance you have a copy of the original King James Language Bible, okay, and you know that it's only the King James Language Bible that can be read in your churches. After all, King James, nine letters. Holy Bible, nine letters. I rest my case. That's all you need to know. Slide number two. If your religion, if your religion looks more like a superstition than a faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you may be a Judaizer. This would include making oaths, consulting mediums, believing in astrology, placing pagan symbols like little African or Polynesian gods, goddesses around. People do that. They, they go to Africa or they go, I love it. People go on a mission trip, right? And they're teaching Jesus Christ, okay, to different places. And they bring back some little plastic idol of some kind and put it in their house. It's like, what are you doing? Okay. You could too also be a, a, a Judaizer. You know, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 19 says, And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. And let me tell you, there's a lot of people that if you still have a newspaper, the first page they flip to is the astrology page, right? What's my sign for today? Am I going to have good luck today? Jesus says, be careful. The Bible says, be careful. You could be drawn away and bowed down to them. Here's one I like. If you believe that your church, your denomination, prides itself in being the only true church, and that only their baptism, only their sacraments are truly valid. Maybe they even believe that they are included in the 144,000 that are spoken of in the book of Revelation, right? You know, you laugh. I can take you to these churches if you'd like to meet them. I can, I've had conversations with them. They are out there, okay? This is, this, is, this is not the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is Christ alone, through faith alone, through grace alone. That's, that's what gets your ticket punched. If you want to know God, you come to him through Jesus Christ. And you come just like Paul did. You don't bring any baggage with you. Paul said, all of the other things I count as loss. All the other things I count as loss. So in closing, let me go back to this parable that I read. You know, I didn't talk much about it because I, I wanted to kind of let it sink in and germinate a little bit, this parable of the landowner. And the first will be last and the last will be first. You know, it's, it's difficult sometimes for us, difficult for us who've been following Jesus for a long time, to all of a sudden, when we see somebody that we know was of no good, right? Maybe they were a drunkard. Maybe they've already beat up three wives and they're working on wife number four, right? Maybe they've served time in prison. It's very difficult sometimes when we hear that they've become a Christian to just say, oh, praise God. Sometimes we wonder, now, why would they be included? I've been working really hard. This. I, I got up early in the morning. I've been working in the field since early morning. I had the brunt of the sun, okay? And now at the end, somebody else is going to come in, and they're going to get the same. Many of you remember Chuck Colson. Remember Chuck Colson? Chuck Colson was a special counsel to President Richard Nixon back in 1969, 1970. He was known as Hat, uh, Nixon's hatchet man. 
his hatchet man. He gained infamy at the height of the Watergate scandal. He was named as one of the Watergate Seven. Remember Watergate back in 1970? Arrested and convicted as he pled guilty to obstruction of justice. He served seven months in prison. Many people felt he should still be there, right? They hated Nixon, and because they hated Nixon, they also hated Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson became a Christian. He became a born-again believer while he was in prison. He wrote a best-selling book called Born Again. And in Born Again, he wrote this. He said, I found myself increasingly drawn to the idea that God had put me in prison for a purpose and that I should do something for those I had left behind. You know, Colson emerged from prison with a message much like the Apostle Paul's. He was exposed to the truth of the gospel, and it set him free. It changed his life. And he felt that the good news needed to be told to all the other prisoners. That's what Paul, that's, that's Paul's gospel, and that was Chuck Colson's gospel at all. In 1976, Chuck Colson, out of prison, founded Prison Fellowship. It's located in Lansdowne, Virginia. I had the opportunity when I was living in the D.C. area to meet Chuck Colson at, at, at uh, Prison Fellowship in Lansdowne, Virginia. Great man, great man of God, tremendous man of God. But there were many people when Chuck Colson first came on the scene, they couldn't quite come to grips that he was a, was a Christian. How would, why would God do this? You know, Chuck Colson passed away in 2012. His very last sermon was an Easter message delivered at a, a maximum security prison in Michigan. I know the prison very well. It's called Jacksonville. It's, out of, it's outside of Detroit. It's Jacksonville, uh, uh, Michigan. Uh, and his message was on the thief on the cross. Thief on the cross, right? Chuck Colson explained the significance of that last-minute conversion, the truth of the gospel, and he's, that saved a man like Chuck Colson that also saved the thief on the cross, that saved a wretch like me, right? That's the song we sing. For the thief on the cross, it truly was true that the last will be first and the first will be last. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you, Lord. You are... You've been listening to Faith Dialogue with Pastor Ken Baer, recorded live at Celebrate Seniors, a ministry of Faith Dialogue. You can listen to or watch all of the recordings at Faith Dialogue by going to www.faithdialogue.org.